It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What is going on? Welcome to the show. Glad you are here. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. And remember, if you are not a subscriber to the podcast, you can remedy that right now just by clicking the subscribe button. And then you're done. And then you don't have to worry about me guilting you every time the show starts, right? You click subscribe. Uh, go to thepetecalendarshow.com. You can also become a patron, get exclusive content uh, like the bumper stickers, the access to the audio files, the live stream that we do every single week. Go to thepetecalendarshow.com. Click the link that's at the top there like Dennis did, Rebecca and Taylor, Terrence and Teresa, Keith, Yuri, Larry, Patty, David, Trudy and Ron, Gene and Ben and Alan. Uh, they all became patrons of the show. And I literally could not do it without you guys. So I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for all of the support. All right. So uh, the North Carolina State Senate has unveiled its budget proposal. No, I. All right. I, as I as I often do <laughs> with these types of topics, I will make it entertaining and informative, or at least one of the two. I'm going to try for both. We'll see how I do. <laughs> we'll see. <clears throat> but uh, this is kind of important because you're going to hear a lot of political attacks that are rooted in the budget and this proposal. Now, keep in mind, uh, the process usually runs like this. You've got the House and the Senate, both controlled by Republicans, and so they work out a target uh uh, funding level. And they did that a couple of days ago, about a week or so ago. They they figured out they want to spend a certain amount of money. In this case, it's $25.7 billion in the next year, and then 26.6 the following year after that. Okay, so 25.7 to 26.6. So an increase of like almost a billion dollars from one year to the next. And North Carolina does its budgets on a two-year cycle. They call it a biennium. So they do, this is the long session, and they uh, they handle a lot of pieces of legislation, and they do the big budget. It's a two-year budget. And then next year, they'll come back, and they'll make some minor changes. They do, uh, you know, some kind of cleanup of legislative matters. It's a very short session. And so uh, this we are in right now, if it seems like this is a really long session, well, that's because it is. You are correct. It is the long session. So Senate, House, they both agree on the target spending level. And now the Senate has unveiled its spending proposal. The House will have its own, and then they will hammer out the um, the difference. Basically, they'll figure out uh, you know a, a, an agreeable plan among the House and the Senate, and then it'll go over to the governor, where he will veto it. Just <clears throat> just a prediction here, because well, he's vetoed every other budget. Why wouldn't he veto this one? And honestly, the Republicans have put some poison pills in there to all but assure his veto <laughs> because I mean, he's opposed all of these individual measures uh, before. So I don't know why they think if we put it in the budget that he's going to now pass it unless they're trying to induce a veto out of him, which look politically you hang that on him again, that he's never approved a, a pay raise for teachers, right? He has blocked every single budget that Republicans have advanced. Uh, and I don't know if that hurts him necessarily. It does give them a talking point, though, whenever uh, you talk about teacher pay or school funding, 
that this governor has never approved any level of funding or teacher pay raises in any of the budgets. So when he says, we should pay teachers more, like, well, you vetoed every budget, every pay raise that we offered, you turned it down. Well, I wanted more. That's And that's the argument we've been having now for, what, three years, four years? So Senate Leader Phil Berger, uh, Senate President Pro Tem, he says, a decade of responsible budgets and growth-oriented tax policy has North Carolina in the best fiscal shape in a generation, This surplus came largely out of the pockets of North Carolina citizens, and they deserve to see some of it returned to them, right? Because there's like a $6 billion budget surplus. And of course, the Democrats see that and they're like, ooh, let's spend it. Spend it all, you know? And the Republicans are like, well, I don't think we should be spending all of this money. And this is, as I mentioned in a previous show, this really does highlight the fundamental Uh, spending philosophy differences between the right and the left, right? The people on the right, they see a massive surplus and they say, oh, we took too much money from the taxpayers. We give it back, (laughs) right? Uh, That was our bad. Uh, Didn't think we were going to, you know, bring in that amount of money. And because that's just a projection, right? The surplus and the budget, it's all based on your projection of the revenues that are going to be coming in, which is why they come back in the short session next year to make the budget adjustments because this is all based on projected revenue. And so when you make a projection and then it comes in under, you got a deficit and then you got to figure out, you know, what to cut. But if you make a prediction, you know, and it's too low and you have this big surplus, Democrats are like, spend it all. Well, wait a minute, that just because you under predicted doesn't mean that the surplus number is a, uh, a number that's sustainable. Right. And this is why Democrats got us into trouble for decades when they were in charge with these structural deficits where every single year it was, oh, my gosh, we don't have any money. We need to raise taxes every year. It was this. And right, they were passing tax increases all the time. They say, oh, it's a temporary tax. And then they wouldn't let it sunset. That was actually one of the first things that the Republicans did when they finally took control of the General Assembly after more than a century and a half out of power. Uh, they, they, the, one of the first things they did was to roll back to sunset the temporary sales tax increases that Democrats had approved. Sales taxes, of course, um, impacting the lower income folks at a much uh, greater level than uh, higher income people. Right. Sales taxes, which, by the way, when Republicans then reformed the tax code and they applied sales taxes to different uh, uh, products and services, mainly services that had not been uh, covered under sales tax. So the big one I remember was um, automotive repair because I was doing endorsements for Jimmy's Automotive. And, you know, when you would go in, you would pay for the service and it would be you know, whatever the service was, there was no tax applied to it. And that changed. And um, look, and you know, honestly, I understand why, like, why would I not be taxed on that, but I'm taxed on like every other service? What is it specifically about auto repair? Well, I guess they had some, you know, lobbyists or something. It was a, it was a protected industry of some kind for some reason. And Republicans were like, no, we're going to, we're going to make this uniform across all of these service lines. And Democrats attacked the Republicans for doing that, saying it was going to impact the poor disproportionately. 
because it's a sales tax increase. The same people, by the way, who raise the sales taxes on everything, right? Because theirs was just a general sales tax across the board. General increase, it's like a half cent sales tax increase across the board. And um, then they turned around like three or four years later and accused Republicans of hating poor people because they put sales tax increases on like movie theater tickets, or not even increases, they just applied the sales tax to movie theater tickets and automotive repair, trying to maybe accounting services or something like that. I forget all of the, I forget all the services that there were, I mean, there was like, I don't know, I, I want to say less than a dozen different categories that now got sales taxes applied to them. Anyway, there's a bit of your history. The total proposed general fund allocation, $25.7 billion, the state capital infrastructure fund, $4 billion plus, and this replenishes the state's reserves, including the rainy day fund. Uh, the $4 billion for capital and infrastructure funding, this would be over two years, $3 billion of it is available for projects, one and change is for previous debt. Okay, so when you hear arguments about, uh, oh, they're not funding infrastructure improvements, or they're not funding, you know, we got crumbling bridges and roads and stuff, there's money, there's four bill well, three billion for new work and new projects and 1.3 to pay off debt for projects that have already been done that's the state capital and, inf and infrastructure fund it requires annual cash contributions to capital and infrastructure projects totaling 16.6 billion dollars over a decade and it allocates almost three billion over the two-year period for the strategic transportation investment uh, funding. It increases the general maintenance reserve. It invests more than a billion for road resurfacing projects. It gives more than half a billion for the bridge program, 140 million for bridge preservation, and it fully funds UNC, uh, the UNC systems repairs and renovations request over the next four years. Okay. So they are funding infrastructure. Now, you may want to make the argument that they're not funding it enough, <clears throat> but they are funding it to the tune of billions of dollars, $3 billion just in this budget proposal alone. Uh, now, I have a proposal that is not going to break your budget that is going to mattress man for your next bed, okay? If you need a new mattress, and let's face it, you probably do, if you're like most people, <laughs> right? Uh, how long has it been since you replaced your mattress? Right? If you don't even remember, but you do know that there's like this big crater in the middle of the mattress where you kind of just roll into every night, you need a new mattress, okay? And you're in luck because this is a great time to get a mattress. You get a great deal at the July 4th sale at Mattress Man, a free box spring with the purchase of a mattress from the Biltmore Collection, inspired by our very own local landmark here. Mattress Man is an exclusive retailer of the Biltmore Collection, which is made by Restonic. And um, that means you're going to get their you know, new world technology and old world craftsmanship blended together. I mean, these things have uh, five support zones. So you got proper spinal alignment. So you're going to get optimal balance of your pressure point relief and support, which means a more restorative and healthier sleep. And Synchrony Finance offers you zero down, zero interest for up to 72 months for qualified applicants. They have tons of flexible financing options. All you need to do is go to the website, mattressmanstores.com. Click the link that's at the top there. It says financing, and you can get pre-approved. You apply, get pre-approved right there. You'll find out 
what your uh, uh, you know what what your terms will be, what your rates will be, and then when you go in, you can shop with a clear conscience, easy mind, five star local delivery service, nationwide shipping, a one hundred twenty day comfort guarantee. Experience the difference at Mattress Man. Uh, locally owned and operated, four stores in Asheville, Hendersonville, and Arden. Mattressmanstores.com. Buy local and sleep better. So what else have we got in this budget uh, proposal? Tax cuts. Yes, we got tax cuts. It wouldn't be a Republican proposal if it did not have tax cuts. Right? Increases the zero tax bracket to $25,500. So your first $25,500 of income, not taxed. Okay. Uh, it cuts the personal income tax rate from five and a quarter down to 3.99% by the year 2026. And it increases the child tax deduction by $500 per kid. A family of four earning the median household income would see a 37% income tax cut. So keep that in mind when you hear Democrats accusing Republicans of uh, giving big tax cuts to the wealthy and the corporations and all of that. Um, by the way, the uh, saw an analysis, the final tally, I think it was on the... Um, the Apple deal, the big deal with the app, you know, luring the Apple headquarters or whatever to come to uh, the Research Triangle Park area. They made the announcement a couple months ago. I, I saw a tally. It, it's almost a billion dollars in tax breaks for the company. So um, and this is from the governor who's going to, you know, use this uh, wealthy uh, t- or the, the tax cuts for the wealthy and the corporations like this is the guy who's making this argument. <laughs> he gave that kind of tax break uh, to uh, to Apple. Anyway, um, you're going to hear that and know that the vast majority of people in this state are going to pay no taxes or they're going to get a massive tax cut. OK, uh, state employees, three percent raises. For most state employees, including teachers and community college employees, but that is over two years. So it's a 3% raise over the biennium. So it's 3%, but it's spaced out over two years. Now, uh, I understand people feel like they should expect to have a 3% increase in their pay every year. I am not one of those people. I've never had an annual 3% pay raise ever. So, uh, I mean, heck... Most jobs that I've worked in radio, you're lucky if you get any raise ever, ever. My last gig, uh, I made a base salary and it never changed the entire time I was there. There was never a cost of living increase. So I am the wrong person, you know, to come uh, to come cry on my shoulder. I, I just, I don't have, I don't, I don't, I don't have a lot of sympathy for these arguments that you deserve a 3% pay raise every year just because you work for government. <laughs> I don't believe it. Um, most people in the private sector don't enjoy that uh, either. It uh, creates a new experience-based salary schedule for correctional officers, which includes an average 7% pay raise. Bonuses for all state employees using federal funds. They're getting $1,500 if you make less than 75K. If you uh, make more than $75,000 as a state employee, uh, then you get a $1,000 bonus. Pay attention to that as well, because you're going to hear teachers complain that they are not getting a big enough pay raise. They are also getting a $300 bonus. This is repurposed state funds previously appropriated for performance bonuses so they get a $300 bonus remember also every teacher if they are in their first 15 years of service they get an automatic $1,000 pay raise 
not a bonus, pay raise. That's the step system. Teachers are on a step system, 15 steps in their first 15 years. You come in, you get hired at 35K, and by 15 years in, you will make 50K. That's the deal. Gives an additional across-the-board raise, uh, sorry, the $300 for teachers. There is an additional uh, bonus for principals of $1,800. It provides a $13 minimum wage for non-certified employees in local public schools and community colleges. It fully funds the retirement and state health plan, and it appropriates $300 million to the state treasurer to pay down unfunded retiree benefits. That's a pretty big deal. Fully funding the retirement and state health plan, um, that's a big deal because the state has made promises, Democrats, made promises to state employees for decades about how they would be uh, you know, taken care of in their retirement. They could retire after a certain number of years. They would have all of these benefits and everything, and then they didn't fund it. So that's the position now we are in, having to fund the promises that Democrats made and did not fund for decades. Uses $100 million of federal funds to provide a $1,500 bonus for eligible direct care workers who have worked on the front lines throughout the pandemic as well. So uh, those are the salaries and benefits portion. Next up, K-12 education, $10.4 billion dollars that we're going to spend on K-12 education. $10 billion, $10.5 billion. That does not count federal funds, right? Does not count the local supplements. Doesn't count any of the local capital costs. This is all just the state funding portion. $10.4 billion. That's about half of the budget. It's literally the number one priority. So when you hear Democrats argue that they're not prioritizing education, it's literally the number one priority, literally. $41 million will go towards hiring a school psychologist, at least one for every school district. Uh, $459 million transfer over the biennium from the lottery. People usually ask me this question whenever we talk about education funding or the lottery. They're like, oh, what happened to the money? Here you go. $459 $459 million is going to go from the education lottery to the needs-based public school capital building fund. And then $200 million to the public school capital fund. So over the course of the next seven years, a projected $2.5 billion is going to be spent on school capital construction. So building schools. And this has been the um, the formula in North Carolina has been that you uh, the, the counties deal with the building costs, the capital costs, and then the state does the operations. So that's why the state, they, you know, take attendance and how many kids do you have in your school district on the 20th day? And then they're like, okay, that's your funding level. Uh, You know, they say, you know, 100 kids at 10k a kid or whatever it is. And it's not 10k, it's like 6k or 5k, whatever. And then they say, here's your, you know, here's your funding for the year. And that's for operating expenses. If Counties want to do a supplement for their teachers for pay or whatever. They're free to do that. But all the construction stuff that comes from the county level as well. Now, the problem with this formula, not developed by Republicans, by the way, again, this is the Democrat system that they put into place. And uh, they said, well, we're a poor county. We don't have any money to build new schools. And so our schools are falling apart. And now the state is saying, all right, well, we're going to take some of this lottery money and we're going to use it to build schools in these uh, poor areas where they cannot afford new schools. 
So that's where lottery money is going. Appropriates the remaining $338 million in federal education relief funds to address statewide education needs related to the pandemic. So uh, they're spending off the rest of that. A total of like four, almost uh, what $3.6 billion came in for uh, pandemic relief funding for, for education. So again, when you hear Democrats say that the Republicans have not funded uh, relief because of the pandemic, that is not true either. Here is something that is true. <clears throat> it is general equipment rental, family owned and operated uh, for three generations, and they've got great quality equipment. They've got great pricing for the equipment, and they got excellent service. Head on over to general equipment rental. It's where I got my weed eater, and looking forward to using that in a couple of weeks. Like it's yeah, we're we're getting close here to the closing. I'm gonna be moving in soon. Gonna be moving next week actually. So. <laughs> Uh, if for some reason this show doesn't post next week sometime, it's going to be because I could not get the internet set up or something or the equipment didn't work or whatever. But um, that's the plan right now. And I'm one of the first things I'll be doing is going out there with the weed whacker. So uh, and I'll give you a, I'll give you a product review. It's a Husqvarna. It's battery operated. I'm very excited about it. Uh, it's like it's the fanciest piece of yard equipment I've ever had. OK, it's a Husqvarna. It's a great I mean, these it's a great company. These, they make great products. And General Equipment Rental is your official licensed uh, Husqvarna and Honda outdoor power equipment sales and service provider they also have all sorts of uh rental equipment obviously uh so you've got a big project and uh you don't want to buy an earth mover for one project you just rent it generators tillers uh, pressure washer but they sell tons of stuff also like hedge clippers and chainsaws and blowers so head on over to general equipment rental tell them that you heard it here on the podcast i appreciate that uh, their website is generalrents.com get 10 percent off your first rental at general equipment rental in weaverville generalrents.com and think outside your toolbox uh, all right and uh, finally what the budget proposes from the Senate side, at least, as we mentioned a couple of days ago, it allocates $10 million for the testing of new rape kits and clearing out the state's rape kit backlog. If you are interested in that topic, there was a podcast I did a couple of days ago about that. Um, it also funds a $16 million grant to keep 150 victim service coordinators in DA's offices across the state. And It'll fund the creation of a use of force database. I'll get to that in a minute. It appropriates $4 million over two years for additional treatment in jails as part of existing reentry programs. And it allocates $5.5 million for new prison security measures, including man down technology and critical safety upgrades to facilities. All right. And I'm just giving you a couple of the highlights here. Uh, if you want more of this uh, information in detail, you can head on over to the uh, to the page, the Pete Callender show. There's a link there. Uh, if you be well, you got to become a patron and then you get my prep sheet. You get all of the links to all of this stuff. But I will tell you also that this comes from Senator Berger's uh, office. They just gave a rundown of all the bullet points for the spending. Um Agriculture and the environment. It allocates $40 million in federal funds to food banks, and it provides like $13 million for the state fair, uh, as well as money for state aquariums, the North Carolina Zoo, because they uh, took a hit during the pandemic. So it's going to uh, replace the loss of revenue due to being closed uh, from the lockdowns. 
It'll provide $50 million in federal funding for rural downtown transformation grants in tier one and tier two counties. So uh, the state has the, for economic development purposes, they label counties tier one, tier two, tier three. I think it goes to four. Um, And so tier one and tier two are more distressed economically. Uh, It also will fund two dozen new positions for DEQ, Department of Environmental Quality, for emerging contaminant response, landslide mapping, dam safety and permit transfer. Uh, transformation as well as underground storage tank management so there you go those evil republicans funding environmental quality measures and it extends full medicaid benefits for eligible postpartum mothers it's going to go from 60 days up to a year it directs eight million dollars of federal funds to free and charitable clinics and it provides three million over the two years for the rural health loan assistance repayment program or as i like to call it the rlarp and uh, to, it's going to fund loan repayment incentives to recruit doctors and other healthcare professionals to rural areas. Again, those are just the ones that I highlighted. There are tons of more. Obviously, it's a $25 billion budget. <laughs> there's tons of stuff in there uh, that I'm not going to highlight here. Now, there's, um, there's another component here. Now, the, the General Assembly is putting policy initiatives into the budget. As I mentioned earlier, maybe this is on purpose in order to try to get Roy Cooper to veto it. Or maybe you're trying to leverage it and say, look, if you don't want to veto yet another budget, go ahead and sign this thing into law. And uh, then we get some policies in place that we wanted. Now, maybe that's, I don't know, pie in the sky thinking. I don't know. I'm not privy to their their tactical discussions here. Uh, But the proposed change in policy that they are submitting in this uh, budget, as far as the Board of Elections is concerned, it would require the state board of elections and county boards of election to report incidents of election fraud directly to the SBI, the State Bureau of Investigation. It also requires the Bureau of Investigation and DAs to investigate those incidents. That's a pretty big deal, I think. Andy Jackson, the director of the Civitas Center for Public Integrity at the John Locke Foundation, he wrote about this yesterday. He says this change would be welcome Quote, part of the problem with our current system for investigating election fraud is that the Bureau of Investigation and the DAs are often negligent in investigating and prosecuting election fraud. And then he has a quote here from the former State Board of Elections Executive Director Gary Bartlett, a Democrat, who said, quote, we have reported it. We've had this. We've had the SBI turn us down. There have been referrals to local prosecutors and nothing has been done. Making investigating and initiating prosecution of election fraud a duty rather than an option, Jackson writes, would actually help nudge those officials in the right direction of working to protect voters from uh, from fraud. Election fraud is often difficult to detect and prosecute, causing investigators and prosecutors to avoid those cases altogether. Republicans also like the idea of having these investigations handled by a neutral party rather than the State Board of Elections, which is controlled by whatever party controls the governor's mansion. While the goal of putting more teeth into the criminal investigation side here is laudable, Jackson says, this is a policy question. He says it should have actually gone through the vetting process in elections-related committees rather than through the budgeting process. And I agree with him. But I understand why Republicans would uh, slip it into the budget. There are a host of reasons for that, as I've uh, explained. But still, I I would prefer it have gone through the regular um, the regular process. Now, if you are buying or selling a home, 
you may have already learned this, there doesn't seem to be a regular process. Every process seems to be different. Buying or selling, uh, you know, one home over another. That's why you need somebody who has seen it all. Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team, they've been doing this so long. They have encountered virtually every kind of situation. They know what to do. They knew what to do. We ran into a bit of a speed bump with uh, our closing, and they got it fixed, like, immediately. Okay, so uh, give them a call. Put them to work for you, buying or selling. The number is 333-4483. The website is mountainhomehunt.com. Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team, 828-333-4483. Give her a call and then start packing. One other component of the budget that affects the Board of Elections, um, Pat Gannon, spokesman for the Elections Board, said the proposal also cuts a third of the Board of Elections staff, including almost two-thirds of its IT personnel, by eliminating federal election security funding. Gannon said the bill, quote, removes the ability of the board to staff uh, using federal Help America Vote Act security funds earmarked for protecting and enhancing election security, crippling the agency's ability to continue to work on modernizing their their system as well as the agency's IT security roadmap it eliminates all voting system staff who ensure voting equipment adheres to state and federal standards in the agency's one existing cybersecurity position and it greatly impedes the agency from addressing vulnerabilities and preventing attacks all of this sounds very bad to me <laughs> all of that sounds bad to me now senator ralph heiss the elections chairman in the senate said the funding cuts represent a return to normal dialing down federal funding now that the pandemic era election measures likely won't be needed now considering what we have seen <laughs> over the last year i think we should probably have more focus on the it side of protecting elections I mean, not to mention that what we saw with the Colonial Pipeline as well. Like, I just I think that that's a really important area that we should probably devote a lot of attention to. I, I, I'll keep you posted if any of this changes. And I don't know. I just I think Pat Gannon seems to be a straight shooter at, over at the Board of Elections. And so I, I'm. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Also. Senate Republicans want to rein in the governor's emergency powers, something that they have tried a few times over the last few years, uh, or the last year, rather, without success. Uh, This, by the way, comes from WRAL I'm reading from now. But, um, yeah, this is the Emergency Management Act uh, to restrain the governor from this limitless, indefinite uh, set of powers that he wields and has wielded um, over the last year during the pandemic. And uh, we've gone over this in detail. We've interviewed uh, one of the lawyers suing over this. Uh, again, I don't think this uh, this being in the budget helps Cooper sign it. <laughs> again, maybe they don't want him to sign it. Maybe they are looking for him to veto it. But this is a policy position. They have a separate bill that they are running that would do this. Um, but now they threw it into the budget as well. They also uh, included language that limits the state attorney general's power to approve lawsuit settlements, requiring legislative leaders to sign off on any settlement if the underlying lawsuit targets state law and they've either intervened in the suit or were named in it. This is the uh, banning of the collusive settlements proposal that Republicans are running as well. So they put that bill into this budget law as well. (laughs) 
<laughs> Again, if you're trying to get Cooper to veto it, it seems like these are pretty good ways to do it. Um, I mentioned earlier they're giving pay raises to correctional officers. This would create a new pay scale for uh, those COs, giving them annual step increases like state troopers get. Um, it's something that prison system leaders and the State Employees Association has asked for uh, for years and uh, they're going to devote like $32 million to it, and that is lower than what the uh, the prison system leaders and the employees association has lobbied for. Uh, it also has a bunch of money in it to get rid of lead pipes and lead, uh, lead paint at the schools. And, oh, I mentioned earlier the Medicaid expansion. This would extend Medicaid benefits for a lot of new mothers, take them from a 60-day window to an entire year, and that would go into effect in April 2022. It would provide coverage for women with incomes at or below 196% of the federal poverty guidelines, which is about 34K a year, $34,100 a year for a single mother having her first child. The plan also includes $30 million to match uh, some federal funding for a new veterans nursing home that's going to be in Wake County. And then there's another facility that's getting money in Kernersville as well. It creates a new cabinet position, elevating the state prison system to its own agency. And finally, there's a bunch of money in here for um, land conservation. Yeah, uh, there's a group called Land for Tomorrow. They're very excited. They got there's going to be 60 million uh, in the first year, 40 million in the next year for the state's land and water fund, a similar 100 million dollar increase for the Parks and Rec Trust Fund, and the, another 55 million over the two years for farmland preservation and that trust fund. Also, there's 13 million in the budget to study. The state government complex in downtown Raleigh over the next two years, a $13 million study. And the purpose is to plan to move UNC's system offices to the legislative complex from Chapel Hill. (laughs) Oh, goodness. That's going to cause some. Oh, my gosh. That's going to cause some anger. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, this the idea has been kicked around for a couple of years. It's This is not a brand new idea, but uh, there are critics. And um, there is $22 million in the budget from the Federal American Rescue Plan to give legislative staffers bonuses and fund some $8 million worth of work of IT improvements in the building as well. Now, um, speaking of uh, improvements, if you are looking to improve your collection of gear for uh, hiking or camping or prepping, then you go to Old Grouch's Military Surplus, downtown Clyde on Main Street, and uh, it's just off uh, exit 27 off I-40. And uh, you just pull off there, easily drop in the shop, and you can see the downtown area. It's very nice. There's uh, the shop right next door is actually a boutique and gift uh, gift shop, boutique gift and clothing shop, I should say. And so you can stop in there as well, or maybe, you know, send your significant other in there if they're not interested in the the surplus uh, material. But uh, Tim at Old Grouch's Military Surplus, he's got tons of, obviously, real U.S. military surplus uh, from ammo cans and gun accessories to... Uh, camo netting that blocks uh, the sun and backpacks and uh, camp equipment, rain ponchos, MREs and duffel bags. Go check them out uh, in downtown Clyde or 24-7 at oldgrouch.com. Speaking of UNC, by the way, uh, this story from WRAL 
Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones has informed the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, that she has no intention of starting work there next week unless the university grants her tenure. <laughs> so, <laughs> I know. So you're demanding, you're demanding to never be fired from the job that you haven't even taken yet. So does this mean you're not accepting the job offer that you accepted? That is exactly what she's doing. She was offered and accepted a five-year contract that was on a tenure track. She would be reviewed for tenure. Uh, she, she took this deal, $180,000 a year she was going to be paid. Think about that. She's refusing to take a five-year, $180,000 a year job that has a tenure track, and she's refusing to take it unless they give her tenure now. Her lawyer sent a letter uh, this week stating that she is rescinding her contract, which she believes the university entered into, into uh, in bad faith, but will not withdraw her application for tenure. University officials told Hannah Jones that her tenure vote would come in November 2020 with an expected start date in January. When that did not happen, officials said to expect a tenure vote then in January. But again, that did not take place. Quote, to this date, she has not received an explanation from UNC as to why tenure has been withheld from her without full. Well, isn't it obvious? Like this is this is like um, the pothead who calls up to ask if they um, if they pass the drug test, you know, just not a good idea. <laughs> you're kind of, you're kind of showing your hand if you get the job. Right. If you know that you've been you, you, you've been you know blazing doobies that you've been you know sucking down the bong hits for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then you go in and take the p test for the new job interview, and then they don't call you back, you should assume you failed the drug test. Right? Logic would dictate that that's probably why they're not calling you back, and you don't ever call up and ask, "Hey, did I pass the drug test?" Because it kind of you know. <laughs> It conveys the idea that you're not sure if you would pass that drug test or not. So the fact that they did not offer you the tenure, but are offering you a five-year gig with 180k a year attached to it, and with a tenure vote to come at some point, seems to me like they're not interested in giving you the tenure right now. But they're open to be persuaded over the next five years. So we'll see what happens. Do a good job and you'll get the lifetime guarantee of 180k a year. I mean, you want to talk about privilege? Seriously. You want to talk about privilege? People who like people who move in this world, I am like, again, this gets to the the same thing like the 3% demand, you know, oh, I demand a 3% pay raise every year. I'm in the wrong line of work. I've been in the wrong industry apparently for a very long time. <laughs> I should have. I don't know. Well, no, because she was in journalism. She was in print of all places. A dying uh, industry. Anyway, to this date, she's not received an explanation, they say. Uh, without full knowledge about why she had been denied a vote on her tenure package, Ms. Hannah Jones entered into the fixed term agreement in an effort to minimize the monetary damages she incurred. So now she incurred monetary damages by taking a $180,000 a year job. And maybe she did because of the delayed vote. I don't know. Maybe she was offered some other gigs and passed them up. Maybe that's what happened here. I don't know. Um, but $180,000 a year, you were set to start next week 
or in about yeah seven days or so, and now you're not even going to take that job, or maybe that's the damages she's talking about. Um, but also there was damage to her reputational standing. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. Really? She? You think her reputation has been damaged by this? Give me a break. Give me a break. The only damage to her reputation. Oh, there hasn't been. There, there hasn't been any damage to her reputation because everybody who loves her thinks she's being wronged. And everybody who doesn't love her, they think that she's being unreasonable. And, the, and there isn't anybody's opinion changed here in any of this, <laughs> in any of this ridiculousness. Um, although it isn't every now and again, a story like this emerges from higher education that really does shatter this illusion that these people are anything other than, uh, you know, high schoolers with uh, master's degrees. Although top Republican lawmakers have denied exercising any influence over the tenure decision, Walter Hussman Jr., who donated $25 million to the journalism school, expressed concerns to university officials about possible and needless controversy if Hannah Jones were hired. You know, I, I love the framing on that. Although top Republican lawmakers have denied exercising any influence over the decision, some other guy who's not a Republican lawmaker who donated all the money to the J school, he has. Well, why would you why would you frame this as if the Republican lawmakers have anything to do with this? They've said they they are not aware of any of this stuff going on. This is all in the UNC fiefdom. They keep trying to tie this to the General Assembly, to the evil Republicans that somehow, you know, don't want Hannah Jones or uh, uh, Nicole Hannah Jones there. And when, in fact, it seems like it's this guy Hussman and his deep pockets, Hussman and his twenty five million dollars that he, he gave to the school to put his name on the building. And he has a different philosophy than Hannah Jones does about the work of journalism. He said, there's a huge credibility problem, and I'm afraid it's because people, the journalism that has, uh, the journalism has moved away from objectivity, impartiality, fairness, giving both sides. Hannah Jones is concerned that such meddling will continue to affect her bid for tenure, according to her attorneys. They say that she cannot trust the university would consider her tenure application in good faith during the period of the fixed-term contract. In light of the information which has come to her attention since that time, she cannot begin employment with the university without the protection and security of tenure. See, so now Hussman has inadvertently given her all of the ammo she needs to get what she wants, which is tenure. Lifetime appointment at 180K a year. She's set. She is set. And she will be able to infect uh, students that come through that program with her particular philosophy on journalism and not Hussman, who paid the $25 million. Sucker. He's a sucker. I'm sorry, but yeah, like you're, that's the, that's the lesson here. That if you're rich and you're a conservative, I assume he's conservative, you're rich and a conservative and you donate millions and millions of dollars to a school to try to uh, create some sort of guidance towards a philosophy on whatever the field, in this case, journalism, then uh, that can all be undone. And in fact, the school will pay someone else to undo and to work at odds with your philosophy. Just a heads up there. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know why anybody would, uh, yeah, just build your own schools, right? Isn't that the idea here? 
It's the free market. Just build your own schools. This actually gets to a piece uh, that Andrew Dunn had written uh, several months ago when uh, Jim Morrill, the uh, longtime political reporter at the Charlotte Observer, retired. And uh, and I knew Jim. Uh, I mean, he's still alive. So uh, but he's he's retired now and he worked at the Charlotte Observer for more than three decades. And um, he was uh, for for the most part, uh, I got along with Jim well when i would you know be out on assignment and we would our beats would uh, intersect and i i always got along with him and uh, i participated in uh, reporter roundtable discussions with him for years and like i said always got along with him always respected him i know people have a different opinion of him and his work and i i was critical of some of the things he wrote and some of the coverage and i'm sure he's been critical of me <laughs> and that's fine i really don't mind any of that i don't mind telling you also that the balkan family uh, for almost or uh, probably longer than Jim was a reporter, they've been doing roofs. It's true. Yep, family owned and operated, uh, multiple generations, and uh, the Balkan family, they're all about quality and service, and uh, you want to protect your roof. And, and you've seen, I'm sure, what's happening What's uh, with the, the cost of materials right now. Yeah, they're just, it's out of control. And uh, they recognize that, and they've tried to absorb all of these costs as best that they can, but they recognize that, there's only so much that they're going to be able to do. These costs are going to be reflected in the price of everything in coming months. So uh, if you are thinking about doing some repairs or maybe putting on a new roof, you want to do it now. Okay. You want to go now before you wait like six months or something. The prices are going to be ridiculous. And by the way, Christy and I, as we're building our home, uh, I was talking to the project manager a couple of weeks ago, and he's like, we got in, we were like the last ones through the door. Because all of these other houses in the neighborhood that he's in charge of building, they're all seeing these really long delays now. They just can't get the materials. Uh, between the, the pipeline disruption, the materials and distribution and uh, manufacturing uh, disruptions that occurred over the last year, they're trying to ramp back up. They can't find staff. There's like all of these pressures going on, and uh, it's all going to be reflected in the pricing if you can even get some of this stuff. So again, if you're thinking about getting a roof or doing repairs, give Balkan a call. They'll come out to a free estimate. And even if there's, you make them, they can come out and say, there's nothing wrong with your roof. Peace of mind. So uh, you'll thank me. Give them a call. Tell them you heard it here. Balkan Roofing at 628-0390. Free estimates at 628-0390. Or go to their website, balkanroofing.com. That's B A L. K-E-N, BalkanRoofing.com, and uh, tell them again that you heard it here. I appreciate that. And let me know. Uh, when you use them, tell me how it went. I'm always interested in getting feedback from you guys uh, when you do uh, you know, patronize these businesses that support the program. So let me know. That's BalkanRoofing.com. So Andrew Dunn, he worked for a while for the lieutenant governor, former lieutenant governor Dan Forrest, but he talked about, he was a reporter and he worked with Jim Morrill at the Charlotte Observer and uh, he said uh, he was an intern on the business desk of the Observer. Jim invited me over to his home. He treated me with respect. He showed me the ropes. And when I came on the paper full time, Jim was always a friend. When Jim called sources, he asked for a conversation and not canned statements. He listened and he tried to understand. He sought to be fair. He got to know his subjects as people, and he operated with humility and confidence. Jim picked up the phone when it rang, too, always willing to talk things out. Jim was in it for the reader and in it for the long haul, and it showed, and that's why so many people are pouring out praise as he writes his last stories. If these things sound simple, they are, but it's just not the way political reporting works anymore. 
We're stuck in a toxic cycle that cannot be undone and one that leaves everybody frustrated. Shrinking staffs, deadline pressure, and click goals push journalists to write quick hit pieces that play well online, and this erodes trust with the politicians. Because politicians don't trust the media, they decline interview requests, they keep their travel schedules close to the vest, and they communicate through prepared statements, and this erodes trust with the journalists, and the cycle continues. He says, modern political reporting is transactional and manufactured. Most reporting from mainstream outlets these days is done by email. When a reporter sends you a message, they typically already have a story written and sometimes even published. They just want a statement that they can tack on to the end. That's so true. The story is completely conceptualized beforehand by the reporter or the editor, especially the headline. The reporter's task is simply to fill in the quotes and facts needed to back it up. There's little to no chance that anything a subject says will change that story. There's precious little pursuit of truth and even fewer open and honest uh, discussions. This allows so much bias to seep into the coverage. What stories are covered? What questions are asked? Who gets treated skeptically? How stories are framed? How headlines are written? Who is the bad guy? Also, newsrooms have shrunk. They've gotten more liberal, uh, and that does not align. That uh, most journalists' worldview does not don't align with conservatives. Uh, in North Carolina, Republican or uh, reporters rather have been conditioned over the past decade to view Republicans with suspicion and Democrats as the valiant underdog. The business model also, and the audience, reward gotcha headlines. Media outlets reward page views more than any other metric, and in-depth, even-handed dives into policy simply don't get enough page views to justify the investment of time and energy. Um, it's actually been one of the uh, criticisms against me is that I don't write inflammatory uh, headlines well enough. <laughs> I don't. I, I'm not good at the clickbait stuff. Um he then talks about hyperpartisan news aggregators that pull partial quotes and twist them into conflict and outrage. Um, and he says the likely the biggest factor of all playing nice with the media used to be required because they controlled the best means to communicate at scale. That's not the case anymore. Politicians can go directly to the people now. And this is a reflection of the end of the mass media era, he says. But the mainstream media still matters for now. But that is uh, that time is running out. I agree with him. Andrew Dunn, uh, again, this is from his uh, blog at Longleaf Politics. I mentioned earlier that this budget includes a couple of changes for law enforcement. It's going to include a database. The Senate budget proposal directs the NC Criminal Justice Education and Training Standards Commission to create a database that would be publicly available, uh, and they would use it to track critical incidents involving law enforcement. And it says these use of force incidents that result in serious injury or death would be cataloged. Law enforcement agencies would be able to track the officers involved in these incidents using the database. Uh, they, uh, two other databases that would be publicly available uh, would include all decertifications and suspensions of officers, but um, there would be one that's still off limits to the uh, to the public. So one private, two public. SBI also is going to uh, look into police officers' use of force if the Senate budget proposal becomes law. If it would, uh, it gives the governor the power to uh, to call for an SBI investigation in three different circumstances. One. If a sworn law enforcement officer with arrest power fires their gun, if a sworn officer with arresting power uses force resulting in death or serious injury, or if a person in the custody of the Department of Public Safety, 
a state prison, a county jail, or a local confinement facility if they die or suffer serious injury, regardless of the location where the incident occurs. So right now, the law allows either the head of the agency that used the deadly force um, or the family of the person who died from that deadly force. Either one of those two entities, the family or the head of the agency, can ask for uh, the SBI to launch an investigation. It is typical for the heads of these local law enforcement agencies to call in the SBI when their cops are involved, but uh, this would uh, now give the governor expanded power to do that. Um, so we'll see if that's, uh, if that, uh, it, it's not. I was going to say, <laughs> I call myself, I was going to say, we'll see if that could be a uh, reason that Cooper could vote for the budget or not veto the budget. That's not going to happen. Like, really, I'm putting all of my markers on a veto. I just don't see, <laughs> I don't see how it goes any other way here. Also, the budget apparently does not include money for a monument to African Americans on the state capitol grounds. It's been in the works for years, and uh, until now, the project had been in a holding pattern, waiting on $2.5 million in funding to come through from the state budget. It was in the governor's budget proposal. It was a priority for the Department of Natural and Cultural Resources, which is part of the executive branch. But Don Vaughn at the Charlotte Observer writes that the Senate's lead budget writer, Republican Senator Brent Jackson, said the Senate decided not to put it in the budget this time, even though it was before funding the pro in the previous year's budget. Um he said, quote, that was discussed and the decision was since the monuments were being taken down or they got vandalized during all the protests and they were being taken down on the Capitol Square. We just felt like this was not the time to put something back up there of any type. <laughs> so in the <laughs> in the 2019 state budget that never became law. Wait, what? Why did it never become law? Because Cooper vetoed it. There was funding for the for the monument. So, like, everyone's going to want to paint the Republicans. Oh, they're racist. They don't want to fund the monument. They did fund the monument. And then the governor vetoed it. So if them not funding it now is proof of racism, then Cooper's a racist, too. Like, I don't make the rules. And remember, they've already done the funding for the Freedom Park, one and a half million dollars. And despite having approved it and funded it, when they did the groundbreaking, the Democrats did not invite the Republicans to the ceremony. So... Maybe there's a little bit of bad blood there. That's a wrap for the episode. Thanks for listening. Remember, subscribe at thepetecalendarshow.com. Hey, 